From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at the rising popularity of socialist policies in Wisconsin and around the nation. Then we'll speak with Milwaukee Downtown's Director of Public Space Initiatives about the growth of public art in the city. If I look back at the impact I've had on Milwaukee, I hope that it's been moving downtown in a direction that feels more inviting, more welcoming, that we really believe the mantra, it's everybody's neighborhood. We'll learn about some of the many events happening this month in Milwaukee, plus speak with one of the filmmakers behind the documentary, The Flag Makers. Each flag takes about 10 people to make. So when you think about that, that's 10 stories, sewing the stars and stripes that you see that are flying from every building and flagpole around the country. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. For a long time, socialism was a dirty word in U.S. politics. But over the last decade, socialism has become increasingly popular with voters. Socialism isn't unfamiliar to Milwaukee. In many ways, socialist policies were the driving force behind the city as it rose to prominence in the early 20th century. So how does today's socialist movement compare to the movement that made Milwaukee? And why are we seeing these policies gain popularity once again? Sam Harshner and Phil Rocco wrote about this issue for Jacobin Magazine. Harshner is a teaching instructor at Marquette, and Rocco is an associate professor of political science at the university. They both join Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Milwaukee has a long history with socialism in in many ways. It was the party that really defined the city during its most prosperous decades. How did the socialists shape our city? Yeah, so if you think about the history of 20th century, early 20th century Milwaukee, you had a really strong tradition of socialists in local government and uh, to some extent at the state level. And working through their connections with the labor movement and through city government itself, socialists really put into place a lot of the things that we now sort of take for granted about Milwaukee. The first socialist mayoral administration ushered in an eight-hour workday, created some of the first public higher education institutions in the city, and expanded the quality and extent of uh, city services. And that includes streetlights, sewerage, uh, libraries, museums, and of course, the, the park system uh, that kind of now dominates the county. It's interesting to look at this history uh, in part because it was such a major part of the beginning of Milwaukee, and yet it, its downfall doesn't happen when I think most people would imagine. Uh, it didn't happen, you know, during the House of Un-American Activities hearings, as you might imagine, for socialists. What was the downfall of the socialist movement here in Milwaukee? There's a number of things that happened. First of all, we're starting to see deindustrialization kick in and, and the decline of labor power really starting in the late 50s all the way through the 60s. And so that's bearing on, on the Socialist Party and its ability to organize. But on top of that, what we start to see um, in, in uh, post-World War II Milwaukee is the Great Migration finally really comes to Milwaukee. We start to see 
uh, a real growth in the black community in Milwaukee uh, to come in and take some of these, these uh, great industrial jobs that are popping up in the city. And there are a, a series of conflicts over, over race that really undermine kind of the administration of, of Mayor Zeidler, who's the last socialist mayor. And there were things along the lines of people accusing uh, Zeidler of going south to recruit black men and women to come up north. And so that is a big part of what's happening, you know, kind of with the decline of the Socialist Party in its ability to win elections in Milwaukee. Well, it seems like while we're seeing the decline of the socialists in Milwaukee, we're also seeing, as you said, a lot of political change. As we look at the decades after the socialists are no longer in power, what did that look like for Milwaukee? What was that like here? Uh, largely what we see in Milwaukee is, you know, like what we see in most cities, it kind of a floundering about looking for an answer to how you how you fund municipal services in an era in which resources are diminishing and the needs of the population are increasing. Uh, increasingly in Milwaukee as well, we have what we're known for nationwide is this abysmal inequality uh, you know, along racial lines, around uh, geographic lines. Um, and that really that really grows up in this era as well. So the, the politics of the city get pulled into, you know, the fights over welfare and uh, is racialized and as uh, and Milwaukee is really seen as, as, you know, kind of the problem in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, we see an underinvestment in the city that happens both at the federal and the state level, and the city really looks around for an answer. Starting in the 90s, what we see is, is kind of the response we've seen in a lot of cities, which is how do you get young professionals to come back into the city and add to the tax base? And so we get uh, the, you know, kind of the administration of John Norquist, who really is a proponent of what we call a new, the new urbanism, which is about providing amenities and, and quality of life uh, changes to, to young professionals to come into the city, add to the tax base, and you know, kind of increase uh, resources available for funding city services. That doesn't really work in Milwaukee at that point. And so what we've seen in Milwaukee is just a series of, of fiscal crises and kind of an inability to really mobilize the resources needed to meet its needs. It seems like socialism emerged as a, an answer to working class problems. And yet what we see as it declines in Milwaukee is, again, a surge of working class problems. We're seeing right now democratic socialists are emerging as an answer to many of these issues. Why are we seeing that right now? What has precipitated this resurgence of socialism, not just in Milwaukee, but around the nation? I think that since the Great Recession and then really uh, with the emergence of the presidential candidacy of Senator Bernie Sanders in 2016, there's an increasing attention to class issues in the United States, in part because the kind of consequences of the particular version of capitalism that uh, developed in the United States are being brought to bear on the lives of working class people. And, and I think the traditional political parties' leaderships are increasingly, in a way, inattentive uh, to a lot of those issues. And so it sort of opens up a kind of political space for socialists and for organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America to begin to uh, address voters' uh, needs. One of the other keys is that economic precarity uh, is reaching higher up into, uh, in, into the income spectrum in the sense that we're starting to see college-educated men and women begin to uh, struggle to find you know, good jobs and these sorts of things. And, and uh, those people are also uh, people who are often the, the, the most willing to organize. We're seeing that actually as it, you know, kind of uh, emerge as well. A lot of, a lot of uh, underemployed college students who are really involved in, in starting to, to rectify the system as it is. Now, I think there is um, 
I'm not sure if it's even confusion or if it's just a conflation. There, there are a lot of people who seem to believe that democratic socialists, socialism in general, is really just a wing of the Democratic Party, as it were. Are these two distinct parties? What makes them different? Well, the first thing to note is that uh, Democratic Socialists of America is not a uh, political party. It's a political organization. Uh, it operates through local chapters, primarily concerned with political education. And then it does make endorsements of candidates like a lot of other political organizations. And what we see nationally since 2017 is that Democratic Socialists have leveraged their endorsements, typically of candidates where there are partisan elections on the Democratic Party's ballot line. And that's part of a kind of explicit strategy that is a response to the sort of failure of third party politics in the United States to emerge uh, successfully in recent years and, and of the sort of difficulties of carrying out third party politics in a system that has first past the post single member district uh, elections, which historically has disadvantaged third parties. Yeah, you know, I think we want to think about what the distinction is between what we consider a party here in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, elsewhere in the world, parties are generally mass membership organizations where members decide upon leadership, on, on agendas, on, on, you know, kind of policy platforms. In the United States, that's, that's never really been the case, especially since the foot troops of the Democratic Party, organized labor, uh, really started declining uh, beginning in the late 50s all the way to today. And so the Democratic Party, because it doesn't have that, you know, kind of on the ground base, is really a party of consultants, party of people who are involved in, in, in foundation and, and kind of federally government funded uh, nonprofit profit organizations, doesn't have those grassroots troops on the ground. And what that means is it's difficult to respond when they face a challenge like the Democratic Party has faced here in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, what the DSA, by contrast, is solely focused not on fundraising so that it can get media, media attention or convince elites, these sorts of things. DSA candidates, their electoral strategy is predicated on people being on the ground, advocating for them, going door to door, pushing their message out, uh, which gives them a, a great deal more freedom, a great deal more independence to really follow working class policy. They're not beholden to, to a donor class that is sometimes antagonistic to those agenda items. You mentioned, of course, uh, we saw a decline in organized labor. I, I believe right now we have the lowest amount of people in unions um, in our history. And yet we are also seeing a movement among many different fields where people are looking to uh, unionize, where they're organizing to unionize. With that in mind, how are democratic socialists faring when they actually get to the ballot box? How are these candidates doing? If you look nationally, there's been a huge increase in the percentage of elections that Democratic Socialists endorsed candidates have won. And now it's the case that essentially, if Democratic Socialists sort of get past the primary, they stand a very good chance in the general election, in part because they are running in places where there's not a lot of competition in the general, the, the real competition tends to be in the primary. Um, and so some of the greatest successes of DSA endorsed candidates have been in local uh, elections and in elections for state legislative office and a slightly smaller number of uh, successes in Congress. But essentially there has been in part because of this absence of street level political organization and mobilization that, that Sam talked about a minute ago, there is a political opening 
for socialists to speak directly to working class voters and address concerns that are not necessarily being taken into consideration by the major parties. So what does the future of socialism look like here in Wisconsin and nationwide? I think the thing that's really interesting about the two elections that Ryan Clancy and Darren Madison recently won for state legislature is that socialists are demonstrating that they can uh, speak to the needs of fairly diverse communities. The 10th Assembly District, where Darren Madison won the primary, he won outright majorities in every single ward in Milwaukee, majority black uh, wards, as well as majority white uh, wards in Shorewood, as well as uh, a few wards in Glendale uh, as well, which is also majority white. And so I think what that shows is the way that socialists are speaking to voters kind of across what might be seen as impenetrable political or racial divides and finding commonalities among working class voters and even middle class progressives to build a uh, political coalition. You know, I mean, I think we have to be realistic about the the ability of, of two people in the assembly to effectuate immediate change in the in the short term. However, I think, you know, the independence of, of these candidates, the fact that they can depend on different sorts of strategies for getting elected than, you know, again, chasing donors, allows them to really respond to the popular will. So we see majorities in this country in favor of things like Medicare for all, in terms of aggressive approaches to, to mitigating climate change, to some form of police reform. These majorities aren't even, you know, uh, don't even make it onto the agenda in most state legislatures or in uh, at the federal level, because it's not in the interest of the donor class. And so I think they, they have the capacity to raise those issues. That's one thing. Uh, they also have the capacity to really start to speak to the interests of working class people across the state through, uh, you know, kind of showing their commonalities or common interests with, with working people in Milwaukee, you know, also to build relationships uh, with, with organized labor to create, a, you know, a more activist, more, more aggressive approach to labor organizing in the state. So there's, there's a number of things that they can and I'm sure will do once they get to the state legislature. All right. Well, we will see what happens. Sam, Phil, thank you both so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. It's been our pleasure. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Philip Rocco is an associate professor at Marquette, and Sam Harshner is a teaching instructor at the university. They both spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers last summer. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are Milwaukee you has been experiencing a great evolution of public art over the last decade. From sculpture Milwaukee to new murals on all types of surfaces, public art is playing a central role in how we experience the city. While there are many different artists we can thank for adding color and vitality to our surroundings, we should also be thanking Gabe Yeager. He's the director of public space initiatives with Downtown Milwaukee Bid 21, and he's had a hand in launching all types of public art projects with local artists since 2014. Jaeger and his work were featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine, and he joins me now to share more, starting with how he got involved in public art in the first place. Yeah, so I moved from Minnesota to Milwaukee in 2014 to attend uh, the School of Architecture at UWM. And during my entry exams from my senior year in high school into into my incoming freshman year, I met um, Beth Weirich. I reached out to her. She's the CEO of Milwaukee Downtown, who I've had the privilege of working for now for about a decade. 
Um, and we met and um, hit it off really quickly. We both share a love for downtown and a, a love how people connect and how downtowns are um, really everybody's neighborhood, everyone's neighborhood. And we we um, locked in on that. I think the first time we met, I started interning um, my freshman year. I think it was the second week I was here in Milwaukee and really started working on a variety of projects, first with our marketing and events director, then with our economic development director, and then with our CEO on special projects throughout my four years in undergrad. One of the key projects that came out that I was um, pretty heavily engaged with was the first years of Sculpture Milwaukee, which was a startup organization. And it was really just starting to form. Uh, We were uh, running point on the administration for the first three years. Uh, And we have a relatively small but mighty team at the downtown bid. Um, So a a lot of the responsibilities uh, for Sculpture Milwaukee were part of my internship um, by my junior and senior year in college. So I think that was the first dabble, if you will, into public art and its impact on the city. I don't think I ever imagined coming to Milwaukee and finding myself working in the realm of public art, but it's really exciting. It's really kind of become a really nice evolution, and uh, I really enjoy the work. And I feel like Sculpture Milwaukee was one of the first major public art initiatives that the wider community noticed, downtown as a piece of the work, too. Right. I think um, playing off the architecture, uh, highlighting and elevating Wisconsin Avenue as uh, not only Milwaukee's Main Street, but Wisconsin's Main Street, and really calling attention to the importance of our Main Street with public art and using public art as a way to bring people from the lakefront down to the convention center. It was really a bold vision. Uh, so with Sculpture Milwaukee, we also thought it was important to have some opportunities for local artists as international artists were um, being uh, curated for this collection of of art. I believe it was 22 sculptures in the first year. Uh, And we ended up launching a call for artists for our first public art project back in 2017 for utility box murals, which uh, now looking back, maybe, you know, the smallest uh, pieces of public art that we have in our portfolio now Uh, But we ended up uh, recruiting Mauricio Ramirez to Milwaukee. He was, uh, at the time, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He had some family in Milwaukee in the Chicago area, and we ended up uh, selecting him. It was unanimous by our our committee. And fast forward to last year, and we finished the Giannis mural with Mauricio. So to see the progression of our artists that we've worked with in the past and the evolution of the projects and the scale of the projects and the magnitude and the the connection they have with our community is really amazing, in my opinion, just to look back and see that growth and development, um, both for our organization and for our city. I do want to touch upon kind of how you build relationship with artists. But before we get to that, I want I'm curious to know, you know, you came to Milwaukee to study architecture, you kind of found yourself in the public art space. But was there a moment where you've sensed a shift in yourself or, you know, something that clicked that's driving your passion now to help deliver public art to Milwaukeeans? Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's certainly something that when you look at the quality and the experience of any downtown, uh, whether it's Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, In addition to having a clean and safe downtown, which is really the foundation of a business improvement district, is clean, safe, friendly. Uh, And you see that with our core services with our ambassadors. But there's an additional layer of culture, of arts, that 
really leaves a lasting impact on visitors that we felt was missing and lacking in Milwaukee. Uh, I think it was noticeable when I I arrived in Milwaukee back in 2014. Um, don't get me wrong. It is uh, an incredibly rich city with full of arts and culture. But what was missing was uh, that vibrancy and, and vitality you saw on the sidewalks and streets. So the murals, the sculptures, um, the utility box murals, the um, buskers, the live music. It felt like downtown was very much a, a nine to five destination. And trying to evolve with the changing downtown is that we're now um, more residents of downtown and more visitors are frequenting downtown. So to evolve with that and what the consumer and visitors are expecting out of a world-class city includes those smaller moments of what we like to call surprise and delight, um, where uh, you might be walking down Wisconsin Avenue and walking past a surface parking lot, but on that surface parking lot is an amazing, breathtaking mural that you'd like to take your photo in front of or, uh, you know, potentially a a courtyard that otherwise wouldn't be activated if not for a sculpture that was placed there by Sculpture Milwaukee. So I think it's a lot of these small moments that create a city that people want to visit and be in and live in. Yeah, and take pride in ultimately. With building relationships, you mentioned with the first iteration of Sculpture Milwaukee, there was international as well as local artists here. But let's focus on the local for right now. How do you usually find artists and connect with them to foster these relationships that can grow from a small utility box to a giant mural of Giannis Antetokounmpo? Yeah, it's such a great question. I think that's one of the highlights of my job is to be able to work with local artists and depending on where where they're at in their experience, whether they're just starting out or they're seasoned veterans and and they know this is potentially their largest project that they've done, but they certainly have an incredible portfolio. One thing that we thought was important from the very beginning is that there wouldn't be one person in a cubicle or at their desk selecting the artwork. So that's where the importance of our downtown placemaking task force came in. And we have, again, around 13 to 18 um, task force members. They're all volunteer-based. They're incredibly passionate about the arts and architecture in downtown. But we also look at, particularly when we're working on what I like to call the fringes of downtown, a lot of our projects tend to try to connect downtown with the um, greater downtown neighborhood. So whether that's Third Ward or the Dr. King Drive neighborhood or um, Avenues West, we typically pull in experts from those neighborhoods into our selection process as well. So one, we try to get the right people around the table, a diverse group of stakeholders, uh, and then we typically call have a call for artists. And typically they uh, we see anywhere between 50 to 100 submissions for one project. And then we, uh, out of the top 10 that we receive, uh, they would receive a stipend to submit for a final design for us to review. So once the artist is selected and we choose the artist's concept, then my job becomes, I would say, protecting and, and defending the artist's concept to fruition, that it doesn't boil down, if you will, through the process, that it remains intact and there's integrity behind the the final piece is actually what the artist submitted up front in the the proposal. Well, and we're talking along these lines of you are paying artists as their finalists, not just, you know, having Mm -hmm. them submit and submit until they hear they're a finalist or not. Uh, There's that firewall protection when you do select someone. What other best practices or core tenants 
do you personally follow when you're working on these projects? Yeah, I think a big one is um, at this point, we've done around 25 to 30 murals in downtown since 2017 of all shapes and sizes from parking structures to underneath the freeway, freeway piers to utility boxes to your traditional wall skywalks everything in between we've really looked at every potential surface and have asked our our property owners who are incredibly gracious in allowing us to to partner with them on these types of projects and bringing life and vitality with murals to their properties we're able to really have this amazing range of public art that's really of all scales and and sizes that I think makes it just more compelling and a more unique experience. I think if everything was monotone or everything had, uh, you know, cert, if there was only utility boxes or only surface murals on walls, you know, I think then it loses its uh, energy. And I think that's uh, where we've been really strong in the last um, five to 10 years is looking at all potential surfaces as opportunities for public art. And I think that is uh, to a great credit to the downtown bid and to um, the evolution of our public art process in downtown Milwaukee. Well, and some credit does go to you as well. There's a quote in the Millmeg article from this month that you're featured in that says, you know, nearly every public art project downtown in the last five years has gone in one way, shape or form through your inbox and through the organization. So how do you view your impact on Milwaukee's public art scene? It, thank you. That that um, took a little twisting of my arm to get that sure. quote out there. <laughs> That's what they used. Um, but I think if, at the end of the day, if I look back at the impact I've had on Milwaukee, I hope that it's been moving downtown in a direction that feels more inviting, more welcoming, that when we really believe the mantra, it's everybody's neighborhood. But sometimes we have to ask the question, is everybody represented in downtown? And is it, and ask the hard questions, have the hard conversations. And we've been able to do that over the last five to 10 years with incredibly diverse artists, respecting the artists and in, in what they're proposing and, and how they are going to portray what they'd like to portray downtown. And at the end of the day, we have an incredibly diverse collection of public art. I was at uh, Bayview High School last year talking about what I do for a living, and we were working in a partnership with Bubbler Bikes for their students to design one of the Bubbler Bikes and one of the students said, you know, Heart and Soul, which is a mural by Mauricio Ramirez on the backside of Community Advocates Building on 6th Street. They said, my bus goes past it every day. I love the color. It's one of my favorite things to see in downtown and on my way to school. And while it's hard to quantify, I hope that that's the impact that we've had, that um, people can feel like they can come downtown. And I hope we're planting seeds that, you know, public art, is way more than just putting up fun colors on the wall. And I think that uh, at the end of the day, there's true economic impact. There's a true uh, you know, impact to how people feel in the perceptions of downtown. And quite frankly, hopefully we've made it a much more attractive and vibrant city than it was 10 years ago. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for coming in to talk about all of your work in downtown Milwaukee. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity and uh, love Milwaukee and love to continue to see it moving forward. 
Gabe Yeager is the Director of Public Space Initiatives with Downtown Milwaukee Bid 21, and he was featured in this month's Milwaukee Magazine. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Just search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen to us on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. In about 10 minutes, we'll learn about the country's largest maker of American flags and flagpoles right here in Wisconsin. But first, we'll learn about some of the many events happening this month in Milwaukee. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Fall is finally upon us here in Milwaukee, but you wouldn't know it from the weather. As we continue to savor the warm weather, Milwaukeeans are looking for every opportunity to get out and enjoy community events. Chesney Wardell is a news reporter with the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service, and she joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to share some of the great events happening this month in the Central City. So there are a lot of great things this upcoming month. I think we tend to think of September as the end of summer, the end of events. But there are, of course, so many things that are still happening in the city. The first one is something happening uh, not too far away from my neighborhood. Uh, This is Silver City International Festival. Yes, so it looks like the south side of Milwaukee is the place to be for the VIA Community Development Corporation as they are having its 12th annual Silver City International Festival. This takes place September 9th from noon to 5 p.m. This event is free and it is meant to celebrate the culture and the diversity of the Silver City neighborhood. And it will be on West National Avenue between 33rd and 35th Street. So come and enjoy food and other festivities. And if you're looking for more information, you can visit vicdc.org. There are a lot of great things to check out at that particular festival. Uh, As you mentioned, it is, of course, an incredibly diverse neighborhood. Uh, I think you can tell that even just walking down the street. Yeah. (laughs) So the next one that we're going to look at, this is a bit of a party. We actually have a couple parties uh, in this list. Uh, Fiesta del Barrio. So Cache MKE is pretty much a musical ensemble that performs Latin American music across the city of Milwaukee, and they've been doing this for about 20 years now. And from noon to 7 p.m. on Saturday, September 9th, there will be a Fiesta del Barrio. And for my non-Spanish speakers, that just simply means a neighborhood party. And it will take place at Jackson Park, which is 3500 West Forest Home Avenue. Um, So... Bring a friend or bring your family to enjoy food. You can get access to some resources and enjoy some entertainment. Um, This day is pretty much all about community and celebrating culture again. So don't hesitate to come out. Jackson Park also on the south side. Yes, it is. Now, uh, we have another party next on the list. It is the end of summer day party. Yes. So this next one is for those who are 21 years old or older. (laughs) And so an end of summer day party kicks off downtown on Sunday, September 9th from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. at the Belmont Tavern on 784 North Jefferson Street. 
Tickets are $25, but the kick is there will be an after party, and that is free and open to those who are of 21 years or older. older. <laughs> um, not to mention the Green Bay Packers. Um, their first game kicks off that day, too. So down at the Allure, the game will be televised on television. And so you should step out and have a good time at the Allure. <laughs> <laughs> the first day of the Green Bay Packers. I will say, although I am not you know, a football person, my fiancé, <laughs> if, if it is a game, he, he will, it, no matter what the event, he's like, well, is there going to be a TV there? <laughs> uh, the next event that we're going to look at, it is uh, City of Light Church Anniversary. Of course. So join the City of Light Church on Saturday, September 23rd from noon to 4 p.m. And then the second day, it is Sunday, September 24th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Um, this two-day event uh, celebrates and just pretty much honors their seventh year anniversary it kicks off with a block party with music, food, a lot of inflatables and other sources of entertainment. And there will also be special guests from a variety of arts like dancing, spoken word, and more. And so on that Sunday, there will be a family booth and other powerful messages for you to come out and get encouraged. And that's something you don't want to miss. So come to 6725 West Burleigh Street to enjoy this wonderful milestone for this church. So for people who don't know City of Light Church, uh, tell us a little bit about it. They partner with a lot of people. They're very active in the community. Um, It's a place to come and worship. It's a place where you can come and get a lot of resources. It's also a place for you to come and just get a lot of the love and support that you need. It's right in the north side of Wisconsin, uh, well, Milwaukee, actually. So it's very easy um, to get to if you ever are ever in need of, you know, a helping hand or Bring a little light to your day. So. <laughs> a, a city of light. Yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, the final event that we're going to look at, I think, is an important day for a lot of Milwaukeeans. We call ourselves a city of neighborhoods. Inside of that, we are also a city of immigrants. So much of the things that we love about Milwaukee are really right. because of the many people who have come to settle here. Uh, this is the annual Citizenship Day. Yes, so the annual Citizenship Day is Saturday, September 30th here in Milwaukee. Um, This is generally hosted by the American Immigration Lawyer Association. And basically what the AILA pretty much does is advocate and bring um, social justice amongst immigrants. Um, So on this day, they'll provide free legal assistance to help thousands apply for a U.S. naturalization, which basically means if you aren't from the United States, they'll help you with the process of becoming a citizen here. Um, It is essential that you reserve a spot on Eventbrite because within that one week, you should be expecting a call from someone to do a screening with where they'll ask you questions about your um, eligibility and things along that line. And then from there, you'll be able to make your official appointment. Um, It does take place at Milwaukee Area Technical College. And so, and that is in the Walker Square area as well. Uh, which is 816 West National Avenue from 9 a.m. to noon. Um, To know if you are eligible, you have to be at least 18 years old or older, be a green card holder that also shows your residency and place of work, and have lived in the U.S. for about five years, but three years if you are married to a U.S. citizen. Um, Other eligibility requirements require you to um, be capable of understanding English and have been physically present 
in the U.S. for at least 30 months, um, 18 months if you are married to a U.S. citizen. And you also have to be willing to take oath of allegiance. So to see these requirements, it can be found underneath the About This Event tab on Eventbrite. All right. Well, Chesney, thank you so much for joining us here on Like Effect, sharing these many events. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Chesney Wardell is a news reporter for the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service, and she spoke with Like Effect's Joy Powers. After a long hiatus, Lake Effect is taking the show on the road once again to celebrate another Milwaukee neighborhood. Join us next Wednesday, September 13th at Anodyne Coffee in Walker's Point for a live taping of the show. Tickets are free, but reservations are suggested. Check out wuwm.com for more information. Next, we learn what went into the National Geographic documentary, The Flag Makers, which follows workers at Eater Flag in Oak Creek, the country's largest maker of American flags and flag poles. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Eater Flag in Oak Creek, Wisconsin produces over 5 million flags each year, and it's the largest manufacturer of American flags and flag poles in the entire nation. Each flag that comes out of the factory was made by and touched by about 10 people. The Flag Makers is a documentary from National Geographic, co-directed by Cynthia Wade and Sharon Lees. It follows some of the workers of Eater Flag, from locals to refugees and immigrants. It explores the question, who is the American flag for? Cynthia Wade joins me to share more about the flag makers, and she begins by explaining how they decided to highlight certain workers at Eater Flag for the film. From the beginning, we knew we wanted to make this a short film. It's a 35-minute film, but I tend to, with my shorts, shoot it like a feature documentary, like really dive in there and shoot it and follow all kinds of stories um, because you just don't know where life is going to take you. You just don't know, is is this story, is this moment going to make it in the film or isn't it? So we followed the flag makers for three years. We edited for a year, we had three editors. It was an incredibly difficult process to figure out who was going to make it in the film and who wasn't. The good news is because honestly, there's some amazing stories on the cutting room floor. This documentary has been optioned to be developed as a Broadway musical. And I'm really excited about that. It's from the producers of Come From Away on Broadway. I'm so excited because it it allows us to then unearth some of the footage that didn't make it into the film. And that can be inspirational for the theatrical adaptation. Definitely. We'll be excited to, to see what comes of that. And with the range of backgrounds that you do feature in this documentary, um, from Radisha, who lived half her life in Serbia and half in America, to Ali, to Barb, who's more of a staunch local patriot, how important was it to show not just the range of characters, but how they work together at Eater Flag? Walking into Eater Flag, it's almost like you're walking into what you imagine the United Nations to be. There are dozens of languages that are spoken. At each person's workstation, they have decorations and photographs and ribbons and calendars, just little things from their home countries. So it's really like each little spot where folks are sewing 
<laughs> it's like you can visit Mexico and then you can visit Serbia and then you can visit Mozambique. It's really extraordinary. And, you know, they will sometimes turn on music so that you walk through the factory and you just hear this amazing mix. It's like a mashup of all kinds of beautiful music from around the world. Um, so it is in a way what I think we all want our country to be is no matter where people are coming from, no matter what language they originally speak, that they find a way at either flag to really connect. They find a way to work together. Each flag takes about 10 people to make. So when you think about that, that's 10 stories, sewing the stars and stripes that you see that are flying from every building and flagpole around the country. Um, so I wish in a way, and I think Sharon and I both wish in a way that that's what our country could be. Obviously it's not. We are both a country filled with amazing hope and there's an incredible amount of um, hope and optimism around the idea of our democracy. And there's also heartbreak. Um, there's also devastation. There's also violence. There's also a dark side to our country. And so what we wanted to do is through the flag makers really capture a moment in time. And this was from 2019 to 2022. So obviously through racial reckoning, through a global pandemic, through the January 6th insurrection, flags and flagpoles played a part in that. And so to look at our country through the eyes of the flag makers, of the various flag makers, some of them refugees, like Ali coming from Iraq, some of them immigrants, like Radisa from Serbia, and some of them born and raised in Milwaukee, like Sugar Ray, who's the production manager of Eater Flag, who said, I love this city. I love Milwaukee. I love this city the way people love our country. Watching what was unfolding in this country through the eyes of the flag makers allowed us to stitch together in the film a, it's a bit of an essay and it's a bit of a, um, I guess a meditation on what it is to be American or to aspire to be American. You mentioned Sugar Ray and he said some great things throughout that stood out to me. But one thing in particular he said is, quote, when you start to learn more about how this country was built for black and brown people, it really doesn't include you. Even though he works at this flag factory, he doesn't personally have a flag outside of his own home, at least at the time of this shooting. But to see these events, as you mentioned, f happening not only just through his eyes, but other people. What was that like for you as filmmakers? And I imagine COVID probably added uh, an added barrier to get these moments, but you were able to capture a lot of them, like watching January 6th riots unfolds. There was uh, in the aftermath of the shootings of George Floyd and Jacob Blake here in Wisconsin and Racine, not too far away from Eater Flag. To capture those moments was a really stark moment for me just as an audience member. So what was it like for you as a filmmaker? Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons as a documentary filmmaker that you end up shooting everything, which is exhausting, honestly. It's it's exhausting because it, we were just constantly trying to raise money for the film. It was an independent film for two years before National Geographic came on and picked it up. So in the beginning, our crew members were deferring and we had lots of people sharing hotel rooms at the airport, the airport hotel in Milwaukee, um, rolling out sleeping bags on the floor. So it's very scrappy and it's, uh, you, you just don't know. And it could be that the scene that you shoot could be something that's really important later and you just don't know until the very end, which I love about documentary filmmaking because you really do not do go down a rabbit hole and particularly if you're shooting a film over two or three years. 
Sugar Ray, the production manager at Eater Flag, is a critical voice and perspective in the film. He is a black man born and raised in Milwaukee, raising children, and still can't fly an American flag in front of his house because of the vast inequality and quite frankly, violence in this country against black and brown people, the racism and violence, and yet loves this country. And yet said in the film, I definitely love this country. You know what I mean? It don't always love you back, which in many ways to me is the, is the heart of the film, is the crux of the film. Later, Radisa from Serbia says, you don't love something because it's perfect. You love something because it's yours. And those two statements, I feel like, are the heart of the film in that we didn't want to just make it. It would have been very easy to make a film where it was just portraits of immigrants and refugees and, oh, look at this. Isn't this nice? It's ironic, too, but isn't it wonderful? And I didn't want to just make a film like that so that people could sort of feel good or it just was this sort of one-stop shopping into some kind of performative surfacey experience. But I also wanted us to go deeper and to really almost like lift up the carpet of the country and peek underneath at some of the darker aspects of this country. And that just takes time, which is why it took three years. Sugar Ray to this day, um, he loves the American flag. And uh, he was actually at a screening with me in New York last night and spoke um, quite eloquently, um, loves Eater Flag, is very proud of what they do. And yet his flag is the Bucks flag. That feels closer to his experience and something he can celebrate. But that doesn't mean he's not patriotic. He is patriotic and is raising his children as part of the community. And, and that perspective is incredibly important. Like we need to be able to have gray area experiences in this film. We need to be able to feel mixed things and conflicts. We need to feel conflicted about this country. And the reason that Sharon, my co-director and I started this film was we were really talking about how we were feeling individually, very uncomfortable with how the American flag felt like it had been co-opted by the right, by the very extreme conservative I'll always stand, and if you don't, you're not a patriot, right? And in that, there's such an inflexibility, a belligerence, and an inflexibility that does not allow us then to both embrace what's beautiful and potential and hopeful about this country and also face our darker truths. And so we want to be able to hold both in the film, both the dark and the light. So, of course, you mentioned uh, Sugar Ray and his Bucks flag, and a lot of Milwaukeeans are going to see one name in particular in the credits and be very excited. Giannis Antetokounmpo is one of your executive producers. So can you share how he got involved or came to know the project and what it's like to have that kind of backing from such a big community figure? Yeah, it's amazing to start an independent film because you don't know where it's going to end up. So this was an independent very scrappy, no money film for a long time. And eventually Nat Geo came in, National Geographic came in and helped us finish it. They were so excited by it that it got bumped up to Disney Plus. Disney is the parent company of Nat Geo. Um, and then at that point, Giannis, who had a biopic on Disney called Rise, all about his life, heard about the project, saw the project and asked to come on as an executive producer to help us. 
So that's incredible. It's also incredible just because, of course, for three years we were filming the Eater employees cheer on the Bucks and talk about the Bucks. So it's sort of a perfect fitting that Giannis is an executive producer. You talked a bit about why you and Sharon made this film and kind of your guiding vision and mission for local audiences in particular. You know, me, myself, not knowing much about this factory that's less than 15 minutes drive from where I live to people who maybe are familiar or know someone who's working there. What do you want Milwaukeeans in particular to take away from the flag makers? Milwaukee and Wisconsin are really the heart of this country. I mean, when you think of it just physically, but really emotionally, like what we experienced at the flag factory was absolutely the best of what this country can offer. People from all over the world coming in, connecting, figuring out ways to communicate and literally sew the stars and stripes of the US flag, 5 million of them a year. But around the flag makers is a whole community that supports them. I mean, it's not an accident that there are nonprofits based in the Milwaukee area that help refugee families and immigrant families settle and settle in the Midwest and support them. And one of the reasons that Eater Flag has such a high percentage of refugees and immigrants is because you live in such a welcoming community and a community that's really set up to enable people to succeed, where they are fleeing persecution, war, they may be in refugee camps, et cetera. And when they arrive in the US, they often arrive in the Midwest and they are welcomed with open arms and they are supported and they adjust and you know they find housing and their children go to the local schools and their children rapidly start learning English. And many of those parents are going off to Eater Flag to sew our stars and stripes. That's not an accident. There's a welcoming and I think sort of a pluralistic, bigger feeling, a big heart to Milwaukee and to Wisconsin and to the Midwest and certainly to Eater Flag. I don't know if Eater Flag would exist in the same way in another place in this country, quite like it does in Wisconsin. Well, Cynthia, I want to thank you for joining me today and also thank you for all the time you spent here locally and the time you spent to give us this documentary. It's a great watch. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Cynthia Wade is the co-director and producer of the National Geographic documentary, The Flag Makers. It's co-directed by Sharon Lease and executive produced by Giannis Antetokounmpo. We spoke earlier this year. And that's all for today's Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers and Sam Woods join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Lena Tran, Taryn Powell, and Eddie Morales from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reevy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Blair Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. Don't forget to get your tickets to Lake Effect on-site. Join us next Wednesday, September 13th at Anodyne Coffee in Walker's Point for a live taping of the show. Tickets are free, and you can check out wuwm.com for more information. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, don't forget you can download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.